we'll go ahead and get started. Um, we're going to sh we're shifting tonight to um, <clears throat> new subject or to a new area. So let's pray, and then I'll kind of outline what what we're planning on doing. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing each of us here. Thank you for a place to come and the freedom to do it. So we pray that you would be with us tonight during our study. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, <clears throat> we're going to switch now um, for the rest of our uh, time. And let's see here, we've got tonight and then where are we? Um, We've got four after tonight. Okay. Um, we'll look at America from the uh, U.S. from here on out. Um, and what I want to first do um, is kind of quickly go through um, the dateline of the founding of the different colonies. And then we'll look at, um, you know, the growth of religion, the different the different groups and the religions of the different colonies, kind of where they <clears throat> went, um, and just see how far we can get tonight. <clears throat> um, some of this I'll skip, but the first attempts at a colony um, was Virginia. Um, 1584 is when they settled. Um, I, th I think it was Drake. Uh, but anyway, some people settled on Roanoke Island in Virginia. And um, if anybody's read about that, it's kind of fascinating. Um, there were several groups that came there. Um, and they're 1584, 1585 is when they were settled. Um, and on a trip back, I uh, can't remember the guy's name, Dare, I think was his last name. He traveled from um, Roanoke Island, Virginia, back to uh, England for some reason, something for the colony. He comes back, it's gone. Everybody's heard of that. Have, you, have many of you heard of the Roanoke? Um, utterly, completely disappeared without a trace, except a few car weird carvings on a tree here and there. And there's, to this day, speculating on what ever happened to him. Um, but at any rate, then later, <clears throat> um, in 1607, you have the um, Jamestown um, colony founded. <clears throat> and that one, of course, um, lasted. Um, it was the first permanent colony in the established that stayed in America. Um, then <clears throat> the next one, there's a bunch of dates in here that don't really apply, but, but it's, it's the whole date timeline of major events in the colonizing. The only one thing I want to mention that doesn't have to do with the colonies is 1614, um, John Rolfe, uh, an English settler, married Pocahontas, and of course they're like fifth or sixth or seventh descended as Elizabeth Warren. Um, anyway. That was also <coughs> in Virginia. Um, they, he, uh, Rolf, um, an English settler, started 
the growth of tobacco, figured out that they could grow it in Virginia. Um, and it was interesting that the king at that time was King James I. He wrote that, um, he said tobacco was a filthy, nasty product. I uh, just tore into it. Until it started pouring in money to the king's coffers in England. And suddenly, well, it wasn't near as bad. Um, at any rate, <clears throat> 1620. By the way, um, this was, I was flipping through the channels and saw, oh, what do you call it, Jeopardy. And there was a question asked, what was the first colony? Um, and I first thought, well, it's got to be Massachusetts. Then I thought Virginia, um, but it's neither. Which one's the first? Anybody know? It's almost a trick question. Plymouth. Well, there is no Plymouth colony today because it was absorbed by Massachusetts, but it was the first English chartered colony in America by the king, okay? Um, we'll get to the time when they kind of disappeared, were taken over by, by um, Massachusetts. <clears throat> in 1628 um, <clears throat> was the initial establishment of the Massachusetts colony and the city, well, as a village of Salem, where all the witch trials took place. Earlier, two years earlier, 1626, which didn't in, include England, was Dutch. The Dutch established and claimed for their king um, what they named New Amsterdam and New, New Holland, which is today New York. Um, but they formed a colony in 1626. It was quite a bit later um, that the um, English conquered, drove the Dutch out and took over um, New York and made it, made it a colony. 1630 was when at actual day the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded. Um, Maryland was founded two years later, 1632, and it was founded specifically as a Catholic refuge. Um, we'll get into most, most of the colony settlements was pro, were Protestant, um, but Catholics in England after King James came to the throne turned them back to Protestantism. The Catholics began to be persecuted in England and outlawed and so forth. Churches <coughs> confiscated. So they now <coughs> needed to flee religious persecution, and so they came to um, Lord Baltimore, is who was given the charter for Maryland. Um, <coughs> and it was primarily, in the beginning, Catholic. Um, then 1636, um, Roger Williams, if you've ever heard of Roger Williams, he got crossways with Massachusetts Bay Colony. And so he goes down into Rhode Island. He was a Baptist, not a Puritan. Um, I'll mention some of the differences in a minute. And so he goes down and, and founds the Rhode Island Colony. Um, <clears throat> and then... In the 1663s, two colonies, which became two colonies, it was just called Carolina. Um, and then 
that colony later in the early 1700s was divided into North and South um, Carolina. Um, in, it was 1664 that <clears throat> New York was uh, conquered by the British, um, taken away from the Dutch, and they renamed it New York. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> 1682, you have the founding of Pennsylvania by uh, William Penn. Also, um, near this time, and I'll get to that date in a second, but n near this time, New Jersey was also founded um, and by a brother of William Penn, um, mostly under William Penn, but there were a couple of Penns. Um, that, and it's interesting how massive the property, Pennsylvania's you know, a good-sized state. Well, um, Penn owned, I think he owned all of Pennsylvania, but he also owned um, New Jersey, the territory of New Jersey. He, so they, he, he gave that away to somebody. And then they um, broke it up, and somebody bought something else. I mean, they were just buying and selling and trading huge tracts of land that would be unthinkable in Europe, England, wherever, which was much more small, well, it's much smaller, much uh, more crowded. So anyway, that's Pennsylvania. Um, 1732, Georgia was founded. Um, so you have all 13 of the colonies um, that it took, you know, roughly... Um, the most, the most part of the 17th century, the 1600s, um, for the 13 colonies to be founded. Now, <clears throat> um, let me just give kind of a, an overview here of um, <clears throat> religion in America. First of all, um, every religious group in America that founded the colonies and so forth all came from Europe. Um, there weren't any other groups. Um, Europe, of course, the continent of Europe, which included England, was all there was as far as Catholic and then Protestant after the Reformation. And the settlers that came to America, other than the Spanish came earlier, they had Florida, and then they went, you know, Mexico, and they had a lot of the Southwest. And then the French had Louisiana, and on a huge tract of land that, you know, went up to Missouri that Thomas Jefferson bought from Napoleon. Um, but other than the Spanish, uh, a little bit of Portugal, and the French, most everything was English. Um, and so England, being Protestant, was dominant in all the settling of all of the colonies. So not only was England and English the language and even the Church of England predominant, but also Protestantism, Protestantism was predominant, okay? Um, and 
America offered to everybody that came here, America offered um, a, a freedom they'd not known before in religion. Um, every place they came from, every place that groups went to, came to America to settle, were church and state intertwined. Okay? Now, I really didn't realize some of this. Um, when America was first being settled by the English, um, in a loose sort of way, the Church of England was still the official church because they were all under the king and they were, uh, the charters of each colonies were given by the king. And of course, it was for the king that the explorers claimed the land. But from the early 1600s, because you're so distant from the state church and the, the land's a wilderness, everybody's scattered from everybody else. Wherever you're at is pretty small area. Villages really weren't much in the way of true cities. You couldn't even have the kind of hierarchy and structure that you would have with the German Lutheran Church, the Scandinavian Lutherans, the Dutch uh, Reformed, Switzerland Reformed, uh, England, Church of England. Um, there was no way in the world that all that structure could be um, shipped across the ocean. This was, well, <laughs> what they used to call the Wild West, which was out here, was originally on the Atlantic seaboard. Um, they had no, they had no, they had what English law they chose to bring with them. Um, and they had nominal oversight, usually not necessarily from the king, but from the Hudson Bay Company or the uh, West Indies or the East Indies Company or whoever. Um, most of the colonies, by the way, you had two different reasons for them being settled. On the part of the settlers themselves, most of them came to escape religious persecution and enjoy religious freedom. The, the, the kingdom and the um, investor groups that sent them over here, like Dutch and you know, West Indies, whatever, I mean, they were for making money. And it worked out that the... Um, I don't know which came first, really, but um, the, the, from the initial colonists, word got back that um, in every single one of them, half, the first one or two, three winters, half of all the colonists died, in some cases two-thirds. Um, it, you know, it was horrible. And um, they weren't, you know, it was harsher weather, different land, the agricultural um, practices over there didn't necessarily work here. Um, and they, most of them starved or, you know, died of various diseases. Um, so the West Indies, the East Indies, all these different companies needed more settlers. And so they began advertising in England where you were 
by law, you had to register as a dissenter if you weren't Church of England. They started advertising in England. There's religious freedom in the colonies. <laughs> so those of you that are dissenters and are hounded because you're not Church of England, um, they didn't care too much either. If you're Catholics, whoever you are, go be settlers. We need more bodies over there to plow the land and build buildings and, and settle the place. Um, so the need of the companies for more settlers to make them more money and make their investment good um, took advantage of the religious intolerance in England to get people to come over here and escape um, and have religious freedom. It didn't mean that the laws weren't still in in place in the colonies that were in England. But who's gonna, no one's going to enforce them. I mean, you're not gonna have anybody come, come all the way over here from England to try to um, enforce what they called the, uh, what was the act, the, the act of something that you, you had to be Church of England or you registered, you, you had less privileges, rights, so forth. Um, they couldn't enforce it. So it was de facto, even though it was English, it was de facto already to a certain degree American, where you had a greater sense of freedom um, than they did uh, in England. Now, <clears throat> so here's a couple things that, that um, <clears throat> occurred as these churches came from England, even though... Um, or Europe, every one of these groups, mostly Protestant, that came over were organized well. They had statements of faith. They had a hierarchy to their church. They had ordination. They had clergy. They had all this. Um, once they came over here, not everything that they knew and lived by back in England, even as far as structure and so forth, would work over here. One of the first things they figured out, and some people were not happy with it, was by necessity here in America, the laity had way more say in the structure of the churches, in voting, in who pastored, all that, those kind of things, um, because there were so few, few clergy. Uh, you know, they had a really, frankly, in England, um, the, the much, not all, but much of the Church of England, especially the hierarchy, was very corrupt. They weren't, you know, they, they threw out the Catholics because they were so bad, and then they became the same. Um, they lived in palaces. They were, you know, rich. They were, you know, they, hang, they hung out with the nobles and whoever, paid no attention to the lower class people. Um, and so who's going to be a clergyman and live inside a stockade in Martha's Vineyard or Cape Cod and get snowed on and frozen to death in the winters. You don't make any money. You got to fight the Indians. You got to grow your own garden. <coughs> I'm not going over there. So you had very few clergy. That worked in the favor of the laity. The laity then, if they hadn't stepped in and run a lot of things and it, it, um, it started what was called the vestry 
movement. Now, that's a term most of us don't even use anymore, but the vestry is the church board. You can put it that way, okay? Um, most of the time, they didn't even have a church board um, in England and in Europe because the clergy ran everything. Now, that's the way it ought to be. Um, but, I don't know how many of you would vote for that, um, but the clergy, literally, they ran everything. Maybe, I don't think literally, um, I don't think that the janitor staff of the local parish church or the cathedral or whatever else were laity. laity. They were some level of deacon or something. Um, so anyway, that was a huge change over here. And it fit in with um, the kind of people that were traveling to America, they were more laity-oriented anyway. They felt that the clergy, in many cases, were the biggest problem they had. So to come over here, there aren't very many clergy, and they get to run things, it was a better, better situation. <coughs> now, <coughs> um, in spite of the fact that there were a number of different groups you have German Lutherans, Scandinavian Lutherans. A lot of these slightly differed. You had Puritans, you had pilgrims, you had separatists, you had people that were called... Um, most of those could be lumped together and call them Puritans. Um, and you had people that just called themselves independents. You had a number of different groups. You had the Reformed, which were the the... High, high Calvinism, the predestination people. Uh, but nevertheless, the vast majority of them, while having difference, differences on stuff that they thought was a big deal, we don't necessarily today at all. For instance, uh, among those groups, well, the Baptists were Baptists because they wanted, to, they wanted um, adult baptism only, no infant baptism. The vast majority, Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Catholics, they didn't have any problem with infant baptism. Um, those were the kinds of things that divided people. Um, <clears throat> so, other than that, they had a lot in common, and it was mostly English Puritanism. Okay? I'll explain that in, in a second here. Um, but finish up on some of the changes um, that occurred here um, in America. A few clergy, greater laity, um, local churches were scattered, and so as years rolled by in the colonies, any effort to establish denominations was met with pretty stiff resistance because people were, they had 20 years under their belt of being basically a local congregation in a village and they ran their own show. And to start importing a bunch of clergy from England when things got more settled and houses got nicer and, you know, um, and then set up a big structure where they had to support all these, this hierarchy, plus be ruled by them, that, that didn't go over too well. So you already have the start of a real independent-mindedness that has typified 
um, America for most of its most of its history. Um, you also have something that we don't understand too much. I'll mention it, but it is a big deal. Every single one of the European churches, the, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, it didn't matter who, they had what was called the parish system. Okay? Now, the parish system meant that the entire country, and, and remember, these are much smaller surface areas, but the entire country was divided up into parishes. Every parish had its cathedral or parish church or whatever you call it, depending on the population, but they would have their church, okay? If you're born, if you're born in any parish, let's take England, if you're born in England, number one, you are automatically an England, uh, English citizen. Number two, if you are, you are, second, you're automatically, the instant you're born, I don't care where it is in England, you are all automatically a member of the Church of England. Okay? Now, the only thing that differed was which parish you were born in. You're still a Church of England because the whole church, the whole country was but you were a member of that parish. You had to go to church at that parish. You didn't get to go next door. You didn't get to go a county over. Well, I like that preacher better. That's unheard of. Never, nobody even thought of it. You are a part of that parish till you die or unless you move far away, okay? Well, America was in no way marked off neatly in parishes. Parishes were the way the European churches controlled, um, appointed ministers, kept track of everything. You know, it was highly organized and it was and cohesive. None of that's here in America. Um, so the parish system of necessity just died away, which added to the kind of freewheeling religious group do whatever they wanted to do wherever they're at. Um, so here's what happened. They started calling churches in America, instead of being in parishes and instead of being state churches, they called them gathered churches or gathered congregations, okay? Now, that means nothing to me till I read what their definition is. Um, and I don't know, I, I can, not that I'm smarter than, you guys are, but I've spent my life in the ministry, so I understand this concept uh, maybe a little more. In the Church of England, in, in the, church, the German Lutheran, didn't matter, all these churches, they have parishes. There's no competition whatsoever. Okay? There's no competition between churches. I'm the parish priest. There's an English parliament passed law that everybody in this parish must go to my church. They're automatically in my church. They have to pay an annual tax. Their taxes go to pay my salary. I don't depend on offerings. The taxes cover my salary, place of residence. Um, and they have no place else to go. Because I could have them arrested if they sneaked off and went over to the parish in Wright 
and went to the Church of England down there, um, the constable would go arrest him. So I don't have to think. It doesn't even occur for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of what's the attendance here? Were we down last Sunday? Are they going to, you know, are people starting to leave and going to the Baptists? You know, have they gone and started another church? They couldn't. So there's absolutely no concept of reaching out in the community. There's no, there's no notion of evangelism. You don't try to win people, invite them to church. You, they have to go or they get arrested. <laughs> I, I could, and, and here's what you often could do. I get my salary, paid by the taxes, live in a pretty nice place, and I got a whole bunch of, and I can't keep track of all, there's, there's four or five different names for different clergy. There's rector, there's canon, there's, I, I, I can't keep track of all that. But I'm going to have canon Billy Bob take care of the next three months worth of preaching the services and doing the communion and doing all that. I, I got a place down on the seacoast and I'll, that's where I'm going to be. I still get my salary. Everybody in this parish has to go to my church. I lose nothing. That's, that's how, that's why a lot of, so many people, even upper class people, encourage their sons to go into clergy, be clergy. It was a cushy thing to do. Okay, you come over here, and if you're dumb enough to come over here as a clergyman in the first place, um, you don't have a cushy place to live. And suddenly, there's no law that says you've got to go to church anywhere. And there's no parishes so that I have, um, I have a monopoly on everybody in this particular parish. I've got to talk people into coming to my church. And it was a, a rise of something totally unknown, never heard of. Voluntary adherence to your church. It's what we have today. okay? But that was unheard of so that was another major shift um, in the fundamental way I guess you'd say that um, church was even done and so since you had to um, invite people to church encourage them to church induce them to come um, in early colonial America there were a number of I don't know what you'd call them, maybe um, programs to try to get people to come to church. Um, often it was were uh, it was charitable stuff, you know, for for poor. Um, they had missionary societies. Maybe they would they would get together and they'd you know copy Bibles and give them the Indians or, you know, whatever. But there were ways you tried to draw people to come to church because they weren't required to. And so I can't even imagine the shift that would take place in the thinking of both clergy and laity. Um, in, you're in a new place anyway uh, to deal with all that. Another big thing, though, that was started that helped draw people to churches were schools. Um, there was no such thing, obviously, clear up until, man, I don't even know when. When, probably 1800s, when public schools ever even got going. 
every single church was parochial. And so that was a way to attract people. And many of the major groups, you know, the Lutherans, of course, the Catholics, um, but every group had their schools. And so that was a way they could maintain, you know, their identification and their, their people. Now, <clears throat> um, there's one other thing that's really prominent, and maybe we won't get as far as I thought I would, um, but somehow we have to think about this, both good and bad. We need to understand this. The people who, virtually everybody, coming from Europe to America as immigrants, n huge majority, number one, were fleeing religious persecution of some level. Okay, so they were genuine, they were mostly, they were religious people. Two, they had been taught, um, in some cases, um, too strictly taught and not, not correctly, but they'd all, all been taught heavily the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, God's will, God's plan, how God carries things out, and Big, big debates, questions over whether we as humans even had a free will. We think we are choosing, but maybe we aren't even choosing. Maybe God, like these, like the Calvinists, the Reformed, we all just are, you know, he wills some to be saved, some to be lost, whatever. Um, those were the, the trainings in the back of the minds of the people that came here. So, they believed this. They believed it was the providence of God that allowed them to escape over there and come here. They believed it was the providence of God that this brand new massive country, which they had no idea even how, then how big it was, this is ours, God's given it to us. And the early settlers, especially Massachusetts, the Puritans, uh, New England, their letters home, their everything, um, I've read more than once at, um, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe it's 4th of July or sometimes, I've read John Winthrop. He was one of the early first governors of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and writing home to his wife who hadn't come over yet. The use of Old Testament language um, of in the whole business of Egypt, the wilderness, the promised land, okay? Um, that's also, by the way, hugely prom uh, prominent in the black church in America that suffered under slavery, got out of slavery, so forth. Um, if you've ever been to um, um, black services, it's a prominent theme, um, and if you don't know what you're listening to, remember sitting in a service, listening to uh, talk about Pharaoh, preachers talking about Pharaoh. Well, you, you know, if you don't know what's back of all that, you're thinking, oh, the world's Pharaoh, you know. Well, it's, it's a metaphor for slavery, a metaphor for uh, whether it's the slavery of literal or of sin, the bondage, whatever, but you, you get out from underneath Pharaoh, you go to the promised land. There's a phrase in the King James um, Version 
describing what God said, I brought you through that great and howling wilderness. Okay, anybody ever read that? Every one of us here have read that, right? Um, that very term was used frequently to describe this new land. It's a great and howling wilderness, but it's God's providence and his will that we come here and settle it and tame it and turn it into, quote, the promised land. Okay, now, um, I personally do not object to the notion that God raised up this country. I don't question that. I, I, believe, I believe in the sovereignty of God and the, and the providence of God. But there were some of the things that got carried too far in that whole metaphor that justified stuff that wasn't good. For instance, one of the, one of the number one was the whole motif of the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament was that you push out all of those tribes which were as history and God described them as exceedingly wicked, um, burning their babies and sacrificing the gods and just all kinds of stuff. Anyway, um, he told Israel, you, you take the land over from them and push them out because they are... Um, they're so evil, they're unredeemable, okay? That was the case there. You have division here in America with some branches of Christianity that saw the Indians as subjects of um, missionary work. Bring them the gospel. Others looked at them and sometimes veneered it over, papered it over with a conquest of Canaan motif that said we are right God sent us to this land we've got to purge the land of these savages and get rid of them and it's biblical okay now um, those those are some things that were done we know there's a lot of things done in the name of religion that's been perverted to some degree and it's not what Jesus would have wanted it's not what he preached, okay? He never told us to go make converts at the point of a sword. That's the Muslims. Um, but there were, some, there were some things in the original Puritan notion that I think were fine that got carried too far um, and ended up themselves um, doing some harm. Now... Anyway, um, another one other phrase that was often used for America in the uh, early colonization days, the New Zion um, or Promised Land. This was going to be the best that there had ever been um, next to Israel as far as a people of God that God would use. Now, I think, and I don't want to get off the subject too far here, but you, it's pretty hard to refute the notion that in, if you want to call it modern days, from the 1600s on, um, well, unless you completely revise history, the English-speaking 
Christian peoples have had the greatest impact on the world for good. I'm not saying every single thing that English Christians did um, was right at all. Um, but in general, it's been a, a long time of enlightenment um, in a, a lot of different fronts. Um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned some of it last week with many of the things that were stamped out and ended up uh, outlawed in England um, as a result of the revival of the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley and the Methodists. Um, all kinds of cruel things that went on as amusement and as entertainment outlawed um, because they recognized this, this isn't good. It's not right. Um, now, so any questions or comments real quick so far? Anything that I brought up? Is everybody comfortably asleep? Um, Yes, um, especially, especially in New England, there was a famous missionary who is literally still spoken of today and named by the name of David Brainerd. And I'm not positive, I think, don't quote me on this, I think Brainerd may have been, um, was he a son-in-law? or so? I, I think he had some connection to Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest preachers uh, in early 1700s. Um, but yes, there were lots of missions um, to the Indians. And they kept that up even after the Indian Wars started. Um, close to where I lived in, in uh, Oregon, 20-minute drive, um, there, there was a big um, Methodist mission. There were a number of missions there uh, Jason Lee was a Methodist that came to Oregon before when it was still a territory. And down near Salem um, established a mission to uh, the Indians. Of course, you have um, the um, Whitman Massacre. Um, I've been to that place um, in near Walla Walla, Washington. That was a Presbyterian mission to the Indians. Um, um, there's still some kind of a school and things there, um, but that was a pretty major work. So there were lots of works. Well, we even have to this very day today, we have missions groups that I know and people I know personally, they're missionaries to Navajo Nation, Hopi, you know, whoever. Um, but especially early on, that was viewed as that's why John and Charles Wesley went to Georgia. It was founded in what, 1632? Or, um, yeah, so then um, how many ever hundred years later, they went over um, to minister. Um, some were very successful and some were not. Um, here's one interesting thing. And it's been a long time since I read this, so again, don't go out here and quote me on it. But I'm pretty sure the only tribe in America that ended up basically keeping all of their original land were the Poncas in Nebraska. And 
I can't remember, it was Standing Bear. Standing Bear was their chief. He traveled to Missouri or I don't know, someplace, um, to the east, asking about a book. He said, I've heard that there's a book and there's power in this book. And um, it was the Bible. But at any rate, he um, and his entire tribe don't know what group, but they seem to be sincerely converted. There ended up being a court case. I can't remember if it was held in St. Louis or wherever. Um, and they were able, the army, of course, was going to put them on a reservation someplace. Um, they ended up giving them court ruled. They gave them all their land. I don't know if it was specified a reservation, but at least it was their original native lands. And they got to keep them. Um, and they seemed to be the most Christianized of any of the tribes. I don't know if God just did that. I have a sense he probably did. Um, but as the, as the American Indians began to fight back against settlers, um, and, you know, I think we have to be as objective as we can. Um, yes, the Indians, the tribes took land from each other about every other day. Ate, cut each other's hearts out and ate them and all kinds of stuff. Okay, so the idea that comes from a French philosopher called uh, Rousseau, he talked about, anybody ever heard of the phrase, the noble savage? Well, Rousseau came up with that. His, his position was basically the, no, uh, the, quote, uncivilized are better if we leave them alone because our, our culture contaminates them. And if, they, um, if we didn't try to evangelize them or whatever, uh, we're the bad people that are infecting them, okay? There's, in some cases, there's some truth to that. However, I think it's very little truth. Um, I'm getting really off the subject here, and I gotta try to see if I can remember these lyrics. But one of the dumbest songs, um, I suppose a number of you know who Neil Young is. Um, anyway, I used to listen to Neil Young all the time. But anyway, um, Cortez the Killer uh, is one of his songs. I don't know if you ever <laughs> heard of it. But anyway, he talks about, um, what's his name? Montezuma. And how you know Montezuma was shot down, killed by the Spanish. But he said among the, the among the um, Indians there in in Mexico under Montezuma. Let's see, hate. Yeah, these are the lyrics. Hate was just a legend. War was never known. Now that's a stupid statement. Made, okay. Um, all they find today in Mayan ruins are all kinds of human sacrifices and split skulls and, you know, go over here and wherever it is down around Casper, I can't remember where exactly where it is, Crowheart Butte, well, who the Shoshone's ate a crow's heart. Um, the notion of the noble savage is a total myth. Um, yet, um, you know, 
when the American Indians started rebelling against losing their land, of course, then, then it, especially the Canaan motif, shows up a lot in literature. We need to be done. You get rid of them. Um, okay, enough on all that. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's try. Maybe we can make um, kind of finish up here. <coughs> The 13 colonies then um, are mingled, of course, with all kinds of different groups. But there were regional areas where certain Protestant groups were dominant. Okay? Now, most everybody knows about New England, which is going to be Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, um, New Hampshire, but we'll, I'll start with the, the order in which they were settled. Virginia was mostly uh, Anglican. It was the earliest um, settled, and of course, Church of England dominated. And so they would have been Anglican, most of them. But as immigration continued, there was a, quite an influx of Irish, uh, Scottish, that came into Virginia. A lot of them came into these the, those kind of middle uh, colonies, Virginia South, and then they pushed over the Appalachians um, and went into you know the inner the inner um, parts of the country. But they brought pro, uh, Presbyterianism. So after Anglicanism, then as immigration continued and increased. Um, Presbyterians from Irish, Scotch um, moved into a large part of Virginia. Both North and South Carolina were also Anglican, but a lot of Presbyterians and Baptists um, moved in. Mostly Presbyterians and Baptists moved into South Carolina in addition to Anglicans who were already there, Church of England. In North Carolina, there were more um, Quakers. Now, North Carolina is up, you know, it's not really far from Pennsylvania, you know, crossing over the Appalachians. But at any rate, there were a lot of Quakers. Now, they were a persecuted group in England and the colonies. Um, so anyway, a lot of Quakers uh, there. Georgia um, was Anglican and um, then began to receive a lot of German Lutherans and Moravians, okay? Um, Maryland, as I mentioned, was especially established. It wasn't exclusively Catholic, but it was established by a Catholic lord, Lord Baltimore, and it was open to other immigration and people immigrated there, but um, until probably after 100 years, Catholicism then was the minority or were no longer the majority in Maryland. But um, at any rate, later, uh, Presbyterians, Independents, Anabaptists, those were kind of, um, you know, out there, Baptists, um, and Quakers began to come into Maryland. Now, Massachusetts, they were Puritans, but Puritans were more a, a, a theology, a way of thinking, rather than... Um, a specific denomination. Puritanism was heavy in the Congregationalists. Um, also, 
well, they were heavy in um, the really a lot of their beliefs in the Presbyterians to a lot of degree. The main um, statement of faith is called the Westminster Confession, and most of these groups adhered to some part of that. Okay. Um, New Hampshire and Connecticut um, were kind of just a copy of Massachusetts, heavy Puritanism, um, along with other groups. Um, mostly, uh, about the only place where there was a time of some repression and lack reducing of freedom of religion was in Puritan country, Massachusetts, New England, okay? Um, and I, you know, some of course complained. You're you're doing to you're doing to every other group that, other than your own what you fled um, in England. You're outlawing the Baptists. You're outlawing the Quakers. You know, um, and so that was basically backed off from. Um, they they didn't. Um, persecute them as such. Uh, New Hampshire, then, yeah, New Hampshire and Connecticut, Massachusetts would all be about the same. Um, Puritan. Rhode Island, um, this guy named Roger Williams, who um, settled Rhode Island, he was a Baptist um, preacher, pretty independent, and um, then there were some, some Quakers that were also scattered in there. New York were reformed. Reformed, remember, five points. Predestination, all that. Um, Dutch, and of course you have a lot, you, you, you had way up, I, I think probably into today, but um, up in the 1800s, all of the, the Van Whoever's, you know, in New York, the, um, you know, the Roosevelt's, um, all these people were Dutch um, heritage and m most of them were if they weren't Dutch reformed which was a denomination uh, their doctrines fit very well with pre uh, Presbyterians um, as far as predestination and all that kind of stuff um, New Jersey I didn't know this either New, New Jersey for a while was divided into two west and east um, and that was something to do with the purchase of Pennsylvania and buddies of William Penn, and they gave each other, you know, yeah, you can have East New Jersey and you can have West. And but they they brought I can't remember, they were brought back I think in in 17 real early 1704 or something West and East New Jersey were put back together, um, mostly Quakers initially there which is pretty hard to believe today. Uh, Delaware was a part of Pennsylvania till after 1700. Um, and then that got um, put off, um, you know, separate. And of course, then the last one, the 13th colony, Pennsylvania, settled by the Quakers by William Penn. Um, now, all of these were, f were open, and so it wasn't very long until there was great mixtures, um, and sometimes then the order was reverted. Maybe Quakers were number one, more Quakers than anybody else in Pennsylvania, but after 80, 90 years, they were third or whatever. And so there's just the melting pot. Um, 
<clears throat> that we hear about. Um, it really wasn't until probably um, Protestantism was the reigning, um, heavy reigning religion um, up until the mid-1800s, 1840s, 1850s, 60s, um, Irish potato famine, things like that, brought a tremendous amount of, of um, Catholics, Irish Catholics. Um, a bit later, an awful a huge number, um, as famines and wars and all kinds of stuff going on in Europe, you have a heavy influx of Italian um, Catholics, and so Catholicism really never got it much of a footprint until you get into the mid-1800s um, because things were so overwhelmingly uh, Protestant <clears throat> up until then. Now, um, let me throw one other thing in here. Um, in the 1700s, <clears throat> there were, and we'll get into some other things later, but there were two great, they would be called, we would call them revivals, okay? The first one was called the First Great Awakening, and the second one was called the Second Great Awakening, okay? <laughs> um, those are original. Um, the first great awakening was in the 1740s. A prominent guy in it was Jonathan Edwards. Um, Jonathan Edwards had um, gone to Yale. I think um, he ended up being a president for a time of Princeton. Um, but Jonathan Edwards was a tremendous preacher, thinker, writer, philosopher, and um, he preached, I don't know if anybody's ever heard the sermon or heard of it, um, but he preached in 1742 in Massachusetts. Um, can't remember right now the name of the city, um, but at any rate, um, he preached the sermon that is still, if you, if you typed it in on the internet, you'd get I don't know how many pages. Um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. From a text in Deuteronomy, just a part of a verse where Moses is preaching his final address to the people of Israel. Um, Deuteronomy is the last of the five books he wrote. And he, he's um, rehearsing to them all the things God has said to them. And God's telling them Basically, you can get away with evil for a while, but I'm going to get you. It's kind of like the Johnny, it, the Johnny Cash song. Sooner or later, it'll cut you down. Okay, um, and the verse says, "Their foot shall slide in due time." That was his text. Okay, um, I've read I don't know how many accounts, you know, first-person accounts with people that were there that in this church, first of all, we think of a preacher as a energetic, maybe, you know, a, um, quite an orator and everything. 
they didn't preach like that in those days at all. If you did, you were considered a nutcase. Um, most preachers, most, most sermons almost always were a manuscript, meaning they were read word for word. Edwards read word for word. He, was, he, he had poor sight, and so he held his manuscript clear up here so he could read it um, and just read it. So the idea, we have this idea that he was some sort of a Billy Graham or, you know, all over the platform sort of a preacher um, making your hair stand on end. Uh, he just read it, fasted three days before he preached it. But in a strict Puritan-like church, he had to stop numerous times during this sermon and have the ushers who... I think I've told you before, in a lot of those churches, they would go up and down the rows. They kind of patrol the rows with um, pointed sticks. You know, Seth, he's nodding on for the third time. We've had enough of it. So the usher comes by, and so he wakes up. He had to have the ushers quiet the crowd down so he could still be heard because they were crying so loud, thinking, and (laughs) I've read this, people were hanging on to the pillars of the church, fearful that they would immediately fall into hell. Have you ever heard the term walking over hell on rotten boards? Anybody ever heard that? Nobody's heard of that. That's unbelievable. I'm I'm dealing with just pagans here. Um, That came out of that sermon. Um, I've heard that all my life. But he talked about, you know, the only reason you're not dropping through rotten boards into hell for your wickedness is, you know, the goodness and kindness of God and all this. Um, People were holding on to the pillars, to the pews, crying. Um, That kicked off what was called the Great Awakening. It was a great time of people turning to God. Um, Churches swell a lot of people you know turned from what they knew they shouldn't be doing Um, that lasted a number of years probably 10 years or so but notice the parallel time Um, John and Charles Wesley started preaching in England in the streets and in 1739 well it was in the 45 or so Jonathan Edwards published a book on the New England area um, revival. Wesley got over to England. Wesley read it and was astonished that they were seeing the same kinds of things in England. Okay, um, A second great awaken was towards the end of the 1700s. Um, and really that would be kind of a longer, maybe elongated um, revival. There were a number of, I think what you could call American churches that were part of that or came out of it. Meaning, um, you know, they were, they were started on American soil, okay? Another difference between the first in America, first awakening and the second awakening was in the middle of that, or towards the end of it, actually, way up in the 1770s, was the introduction of Methodism from England into America, 
which Methodism within 60 years um, of 16 or 1771, when um, the first Methodist missionary was sent over, um, ended up, Methodism was virtually unheard of. And by 1850, one-third of all church people were Methodists. So, I mean, it, 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 it had an incredible um, spread and takeover, really, of Protestant uh, Christianity in, in America. Uh, let's see, was that what? Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. So, I think we're done. Any more quick questions or anything before we get out of here? Okay. We'll pray, and then you'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for our time here. We pray that you would also um, bless all those who, especially the kids, Lord, who are being taught the Bible stories and taught about Jesus. Their tar hearts are tender, and I pray that they would understand and take to heart things of the truth and of God. Be with us now, we pray, as we dismiss and we find our way home. Keep us safe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.